But here we go. So we're shifting gears. We shifted gears last week into a less of a foundation. We've, we've built a foundation over the last several weeks, months, um, and really now we're looking at, well, what do we do in light of everything that's come? And so we began last week with what I think was both loved and hated all at the same time inside the room. Uh, like there's people who loved it and there's people like, what in the world is he talking about? And I got both that feedback. So I know that that's true. Uh, but it really, is, it really is intentional because I want you to see the way we come to these things is shaped by what we believe the Bible to say. We're so quick to pick and choose places in the Bible that I like that one, but I just don't like that one. And so we pick and choose our favorite passages and forget that there's actually an overarching, undergirding, foundational truth that the Bible is teaching from start to finish. And then when we begin to build our ideals or our values or even our perspectives off of little pieces of that rather than the whole thing. And so that's what has happened uh, in much of church history and especially, I think, in the world around us. So I put up the chart, and I think it's going to go up behind me now. There's a chart with three different perspectives, and I'm not going to go through it today. For those that hated it, I'm not going to walk all the way through it. I just want it to be there for reference. But there's these different ways that we approach the Scripture, the different ways that then we approach everything else in the Scripture. And it really is all tied to covenants. Your view of the covenants inform everything about how you view the Scripture. Even for those on the your left side of the screen, even though they don't focus primarily on the covenants, they still have a view of the covenants in the same sense that everyone's a theologian, even the atheist is a theologian. Everyone has a view of the covenants, and it shapes how they approach the whole Scripture. As a result of that, there's all of this, all of this debating and, and talking, and sometimes it's helpful and healthy, and sometimes it's not, and it's, names start being called, and Fingers start getting pointed and divisions start being drawn when realistically all of these people, every, every position referenced, although there's far-reaching extremes that are unhealthy, these positions all fit within a Christian framework. But as a result of our view, and not, not maybe your view, but the view that we've taught with from the very beginning, there, there's a way that, that we're going to approach this passage. And so that's where we come to this Reformed Baptist view, uh, and it works out in a couple of different ways. But as a Baptistic church, not meaning denominationally, not meaning because we're a, a, a Baptist denominational church, but being Baptistic, meaning we believe in regenerate church membership, meaning that you must be saved to be a member of the church, and baptism of believers, not baptism of infants, we couldn't fit in the category of the paedo-baptists, right? It just doesn't, consistently it won't hold. But then also as a church that teaches from a covenantal perspective, we wouldn't fit in the dispensational, at least not with the teaching voice, even if that's your view. The teaching voice, the teaching positions of this church have always been this. And so as a result of that, it's shaped everything. So I've not talked about this a lot, but, but I want you to see how far it goes. When we chose curriculum, all the way back 15 years ago, when we chose curriculum for our kids' program, I looked at a ton of curriculum, and I was sent, um, uh, gosh, what's the word, recommendations from, well, not tons of people, because our church has never been tons of people, but lots of people in the church, but then also people outside the church, and I would look at some of them, and, and I referenced one in our community group this week, it's called Gospel Light. L-I-G-H-T, like gospel light. 
But as I looked at it, what it became was gospel light. It was light on the gospel, L-I-T-E, gospel light. It was light. It was weak. It was, it was, it was moralism. It was, if you will obey, Jesus will love you. And there's so much curriculum out there that doesn't, doesn't sound like that on the surface. It doesn't immediately stand out, but it's, it, it unintentionally is seeking to help our, challenge our children to, to see their choices and their actions as the predominant thing rather than the faith that drives them. What do they believe? And so we looked for, I, I, I worked hard, I looked long and hard found a Presbyterian one I wasn't excited about, but I was better with. They didn't talk about baptism. They didn't deal with those issues. They didn't talk a lot about the covenants, but they sought, the name of it was Show Me Jesus. And so if you taught in our kids program back then, you know what I'm talking about. It was the first curriculum we used. But then along comes Project Gospel Project. And every passage, you may not agree with every doctrinal position or every little nuance that they have to say, but every passage they teach your children, they teach your youth, we even used it with our adults for a period of time, is walking through the whole Bible, always pointing to Jesus. Because at the end of the day, the Sunday school answer, while oftentimes given in a trite way, is actually the right thing. Well, what do I do with sexuality? Jesus. What do I do with this struggle and this temptation? Jesus. It's always about Jesus. He is the solution. Are there practical things we can do? Absolutely. But if you don't have Jesus... If he's not the center, if he's not the thing, if he's not at the core and the, and the, and the foundation of every solution and the, and the undergirding strength of every solution and the overarching uh, answer to every solution, if he's not central to every solution, it will fail you. It will fall. It will crumble. Every one of our equip classes, even today, even, even when we use... Uh, Presbyterian resources, like from Ligonier Ministry, I watch through them to ensure that if there's going to be a question, like for example, church history, he dealt with baptism at one point. I needed to ensure that when we came across that, if it was going to present something that was, that was too heavy into the law camp, that at least we could discuss it and demonstrate the difference. Every teaching voice in our church, this is where we're going to stand. Seeking to be unified and consistent. And as a result of that, there's two really two, two lines we can go down. And one is 1689 federalism. One is progressive covenantalism. I'm teaching from a progressive covenantal view. Um, and, and, and that's where we landed last week as we looked at a passage. That's the way we looked at the passage. And, and honestly, I, I think that's ultimately the position the Bible presents. But... That's where we landed last week when we looked at the verses from Matthew 27. What are the greatest commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. The whole of the law and the prophets hang on these two things. There was continuity and there was discontinuity. There was a connection and a disconnect between those two statements. Or, or, or those, I'm sorry, not those two statements. Those were consistent. But there's a connection between the old covenant law. He affirmed the greatness. And there was a disconnect in that there was something new and a new way he was putting it together. As our great high priest, this was the main point. As our great high priest, Jesus affirmed the greatness of the Old Testament commands, but not without a new covenant perspective. That was the point that I sought to build out last week. As our great high priest, Jesus affirmed the, greatest, the greatness of the Old Testament commands, but not without a new covenant perspective. Now, I've given you a review of what we started with last week, but the question came this week in, in our community group. The question... 
I'm guessing probably came in your discussions, maybe even your thoughts. Why does any of it matter? Why do I need to know this? Why, why, why care what position I have? What does it matter? That when we hear Jesus call out a command to love God and love neighbor, and, and, and the whole, why does it matter that I know that there's a continuity and a discontinuity between them? Well, first, let me just start with this. Let me, let, me, let me start with what this whole series has been about. The whole reason we started into this and seeking to build out a whole view of, of God from beginning to end, the Alpha and the Omega, right? I, I, I could point you back to the things that led me to it in my life, the, the knowing or, or the desire to know and not having the answer but God confronting me and saying, but you know the God who knows, right? And I want to be careful. He didn't show up and speak that to me, but he called me to trust him. I don't know, but I know the God who knows. Walking through and watching my dad die and not, well, uh, watching the process of that take place and wondering about his soul because part of his life was given in faithful commitment from every outward appearance, and part of his life was... At least from the outside, there's uncertainty. Is, is my dad in heaven? I don't know. But I know the God who knows. And I found rest. I found peace in knowing that this God has always been God. The same God that created the heavens and the earth is the God who has been redeeming people all along. Who has been certain to not lose anyone. So, so knowing God. Knowing his work in the world, seeing it unfold, brings about peace. But more than that, just imagine where we've been at this last several years. All the angst. Let me just ask, a, let me just ask you to consider, has anyone felt like there's been peace in the church? Has any, not just our church, but I'm talking about the American church at large. Do you think that peace and unity and rest and faith would be the markers of the American church over the last three to four years? I'm asking. Okay. Right. I, I, and I know I asked that in almost pressing you to say no, but, but I don't think that that, I, I, I think that what we've seen over the last years, uh, last several years is, is fear and, and uh, de- desperation and um, infighting and name calling and beating down brothers and sisters in the faith because we don't see some secondary or tertiary issue. We've got podcasts. So I was talking at the men's retreat, having a conversation about uh, Allie Beth Stuckey, I think her, her name is. And I want to be careful about this because she's not here to defend herself. And I don't want to do the very same thing that she's done to other people. But she's a reformed, I believe, reformed Baptist Christian. She might be paid a Baptist, but I think she's a reformed Baptist Christian. She she, is, uh, she has a podcast. Maybe you listen to her. I think she's affiliated with like Blaze or something like that. But I recently saw a, uh, the Gospel Coalition is a website out there. I'm certain you're, most of you are familiar with it. They recently did a whole series, two different series of what they called Good Faith Debates, where Christians on differing sides, opposing positions of, of different perspectives got on stage to, or got in front of the camera together and presented their position. And whether you like them or agree with them or disagree with them, at the end of the day, they were being faithful in their position and they were being courteous to one another. And when they would call the other out, the other was there to be able to provide some response. 
Anyway, so a homeschool one comes out. Uh, I don't remember who did it, uh, but one side presenting the, the values of homeschool, the, the responsibility, the good of homeschool, and the other side saying, no, I, I think public school's not a problem. Regardless of your position there, I'm not arguing for that. But the person, oh, Jen Wilkin was the name of the woman who, who, who defended public school. Like a week later, Ali Beth Stuckey has a podcast come out, has a video come out on YouTube, and she said, she's got a picture of Jen Wilkin next to her, and she's got this, uh, the phrase, something to the phrase, to the effect of um, uh, biblical, public school biblical, and then a face, like this disgusted, like questioning face. Now let me just ask you the question. If someone did that to you, how would it be received? Would you feel loved by your brother or sister if they didn't give you a hearing? If they didn't give you an opportunity to defend yourself? Do you think that would be representative of Christ in the way that he's loved his people? Does it reflect love? And we can make arguments. Oh, it defends, it protects, it keeps people. But if we enter into injustice... By acting on, or, or if we enter into a fight for justice by acting unjustly, how have we done something better? Right? So, so all of this matters because we have to have a foundation here. We have to understand what we've been called to do. We, th- th- we have been surrounded by infighting such that the world is not seeing a body of believers who stand together in Christ. And as a result, those of us who listen to all these people and have all these perspectives and all this influence... How many of you have felt peace over the last several years? How many of you have felt like you've been driven to the law to find peace? And if we could just enact the law to find peace. How many of you have been driven to a place, just throw the law away and we'll find peace? Those messages are out there. Everybody's got a solution. But I promise you this. Not because I'm the expert, not because I'm the authority, but because over and over Jesus draws us back to the same place. There's only one person who has an actual solution that actually produces real fruit. His name is Jesus. The law will never fulfill the things we ask it to do. The absence of the law will never fulfill the things that we hope it will. There is continuity and discontinuity over and over through the scripture. We're going to see it again today. But today, we're really going to get at asking why Jesus dealt with the law in these ways. So why, why are we doing it? Because I want you to grow up in faith. I want you to grow up in Christ. I want you to see yourself matured so that you're not, as Paul, being blown to and fro by every wind of doctrine or every podcaster that decides they've got the right to stand up and tell every Christian how they should think and feel. You know, by every newscast that comes out that brings the news of some new tragedy that we think is going to destroy us but that we would be stable, that we would have peace. Because I think that's what Jesus gave us. Every reason to have peace in him. So we're going to start today in, 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 as we dig into the scripture, Matthew 5, 17 through 20. And I hope you'll see this work out. I'm, I'm going to do my best to help you see how this works out and actually gives us a solid footing on which to read the Bible and stand 
solidly on biblical truth that recognizes both continuity and discontinuity as we look to the Old Covenant, as we look to the Old Testament, as we look to the Old Law, or the Mosaic Law. So beginning in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, the word says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same thing will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father, help us now. And while I I long, I long for our angst to be removed, I long for our sense uh, our, our hearts to be at rest, uh, peace to be experienced, that I know that you lead us in the wilderness for a reason. I think probably in part that's just so that we'll only look to you for our peace and our rest. But would you help us today, I pray, just lean into trusting who Jesus is, what he's done And living our life shaped by that, reflecting it, and expressing it, teaching it, and training it in others, I pray. Amen. So, just like last week in our study, when Jesus interacts or speaks about the law over and over and over, I could show you this. I showed you it from the greatest commandments. I show it here to you, another prominent passage that people use. He interacts and speaks with it with a continuity and a connection, a continuity and a discontinuity, a disconnect. And we see the same thing as our, as our great high priest, Jesus affirmed the greatness of the Old Testament commands, but, but not without a new covenant perspective. We see in this passage the same thing. He speaks of the old covenant law. He speaks of the law, and not in a negative way, not in a disparaging way. But he also demonstrates that there's something different as a result of it. There's, there's going to be a shift, a, a, a change. See, in this, in this passage, I think what we begin to see is, is why Jesus deals with the law in this way. Why does he take the theological stances? Why does he take the positions he does? Now, I could answer the question because he's a progressive covenantalist, right? Like, I could say that's who Jesus ha- had the theological perspective I did. Lots of people will do that. And I say it a little bit joking. He's at least a Reformed Baptist, right? If he's not progressive covenantal, he's at least Reformed Baptist. I, 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 know, I, I know that's, please, hear, that's facetious. Uh, I do think that it is what the Bible demonstrates, and uh, I do think that's the position that we should hold, but that's not really what we learn from this passage. This passage doesn't tell us what covenantal perspective he had, but we do see both continuity and discontinuity. We do see a connection And we do see a disconnect. The connection, Jesus isn't here to abolish the law. It should be taught. Right? Like that. He's not saying quit teaching it. Quit telling people. He's saying it should be taught. I'm not not here to destroy it. But on the other side, there's a disconnect. He's there to fulfill it. To enter into kingdom, righteousness is going to have to be greater than what you can earn from the law. The Pharisees and the scribes, man, they, they, from every outward appearance... They were fulfilling the law in their own minds. They were fulfilling the law. 
But our, our, there, there, there's no way that righteousness, you have to be even more righteous than they to enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus didn't ignore, undermine, or override the Mosaic law, but instead obeyed, explained, and brought the law to its intended end. Jesus didn't ignore, undermine, or override the Mosaic law, but instead obeyed, explained, and brought the law to its intended end. Two times before he even gets to his statement that he's come to fulfill it, he ensures people, I didn't come to abolish it. I'm not here to abolish it. I'm here to fulfill it. It it seems, now it's interesting because before this, in the book of Matthew, we don't really have a reason explicitly stated to tell us why he's already telling people before he does anything else to tell them that he's not here to abolish the law. But there probably is reason. He was already teaching. This is at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. He's about to express a whole, a whole ethic for kingdom life. But he's been teaching these things all over the place. This isn't the first time he's taught anyone. In Mark chapter 1, verse 22, it tells us that, that he is teaching with an authority that's shocking. So when the scribes and Pharisees came to teach, they're always referencing some other authority. Rabbi so-and-so said this, Rabbi this, Rabbi that, Rabbi. And Jesus says, I'm telling you. And he's speaking with a, a different authority, a th- authority unto himself. And so it's clear that people are already beginning to think, wait a minute, should we just throw all this stuff out? Should we get rid of it? Is, is it unholy? Is it no, of, of no use? So as Jesus comes down to, to establish in, in an orderly fashion and, and Matthew recording it for us today, he doesn't start here immediately, but before he goes into the, the breadth and depth of the teaching, he stops and says, I'm not going to abolish the law. I did not come for that purpose. Abolish, it means that the Greek word is kataleio, it's tear down, destroy. He did not come to destroy it. He did not come to tear it down. Incidentally, he used this same word as he spoke of the temple. Matthew 24, verse 2 is where he uses it. But just for some context, let me read 1 and 2. Jesus left the temple, was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. Hey, look at this. It's amazing. But he said to them, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will, be not left, or there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down, that will not be destroyed. It's the same word, just translated slightly differently. He is there to destroy the temple, but he's not there to destroy the law. It's an interesting, he, he, he's not there to, to undermine it. He's not there to ignore it or override it. He didn't ignore it. He didn't pretend that the Mosaic law had no bearing on anyone's life or or, or those that he was speaking to. Of course it did. Who's he speaking to? Pharisees and scribes, people in, in Jewish life, he's speaking directly to his apostles and disciples. At this point, what covenant were they under? The old covenant. Of course it spoke to their life. Of course it mattered to them. Of course there was they, they were bound to God in that old covenant law. The people he was speaking to, it mattered immensely to them. He didn't ignore it. He didn't undermine it, you know, like how we like to do. 
uh, uh, public school biblical? And we begin to undermine the position of other brothers and sisters in Christ who hold their position faithfully because it doesn't agree with ours. He didn't undermine it in any way. He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't poke fun at it. He wasn't insulting or degrading toward it. He didn't try to poke holes in it. Right? He didn't, he, in no way was he rude or arrogant or, 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 or disregarding. He didn't seek to tear it down in any way. Every time we see him speak of the law, there is a respect There's an understanding. There's an honor to it. But he also doesn't override it. Right? So he's not tearing it down from underneath. He's he's not ignoring that it's there and its value. But he also doesn't come in and say, Hey, I happen to be God. Don't pay attention. Right? He's teaching with authority. He has every right. I mean, he is the one. He was there. John tells us he was there when the whole world was created. Nothing was created apart from him. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Everything was created through him. He's got authority to do kind of what he wants within his nature. But he didn't. And the people were recognizing. They were recognizing his authority. But he didn't come in and say, ignore it, undermine it yourself. He didn't give them freedom to just tear it down. He didn't override it. Jesus didn't ignore, didn't undermine, or override the Mosaic law. But instead, he obeyed it, explained it, and brought the law to its intended end. He fulfilled the law. I didn't come to abolish it. I came to fulfill it. So in the abolishing, I didn't come to abolish it. We see that continuity, but in the, in the fulfilling of it, we begin to see a discontinuity. Well, what does it mean that he came to fulfill it? The Greek word is play, play oh man, play rosai. I look these things up and I listen to people say them over and over, and it's not helping me right now, but make replete, satisfy, execute, finish. Matthew uses this word more often than any other gospel writer does. Over and over, he's seeking to show Jesus the fulfillment of all that's been prophesied and presented in the Old Testament Scripture. Matthew one twenty two. all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. I forget, I think I put both verses up there. Is the next verse up there? Yeah, and he rose and took the child and his mother. So, so Joseph taking his child to Egypt to protect him from Herod's uh, threat. I don't know why I didn't put it in my verses. And as a result, he fulfills the prophecy that his son would come out of Egypt. Oh, I thought that was Egypt. I I, I thought that was Israel, the son he brought out of Egypt. Oh, no, no. There's a prophecy that's actually pointing to Jesus and fulfilled in Christ. Matthew 2, 14 and 15. And he rose and took the child and his mother and night departed to Egypt. Oh, no. Man, I'm all messed up. Sorry. I'm human. Uh, I don't know what... Anyway, and he rose... So this is Joseph taking his child and his mother. And he remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the law of prophet... Spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Matthew eight seventeen. This was to fulfill... Hear it? Fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. So he's in a village healing people and, 
and, and making them well, casting out demons. And Matthew says, this is a fulfillment of prophecy. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. To, to, to fulfill, it, it's, it's been uh, interpreted in three primary ways. There's all kinds of different variations to this, but three primary ways. It may mean that he came to do the things laid down in Scripture, that he came to obey it. It may mean that he would bring out the full meaning of the Scripture, that he would explain that what you've heard is not exactly what you think you heard, but here's what it really means. Or it may mean that his life and teaching would bring Scripture to its completion. I'm going to suggest, and I'm not alone in this, but I'm going to suggest that he's actually doing all three. That this is his purpose, to fulfill it in every way it needs to be, It's right to be fulfilled. Jesus obeyed the law. All 613 of them. He was not sinless. How would we know he's not sinless without a standard to measure him by? How how would we be able to look at him and say, he's the Savior, if we didn't know that he was sinless? And, and And the scribes and the Pharisees had this down. They counted 613 laws, but they had it broken out to 248 positive laws. You should do this. And 365 negative laws, you shouldn't do this. But Jesus obeyed it. And there's a reason why he obeyed it. Galatians 4.4, Paul tells us, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born born under the law. He's born under it. He's he's among the covenant people of the old covenant. These people he's talking to in this passage that are bound to God in this relationship in old covenant. He's born into that covenant. So what happens when he is born? Eight days after he's born, what do his parents do? They take him to the temple to be consecrated. And they give two pigeons, because they were poor, they give two two pigeons um, as an offering, as a consecration. Incidentally, those are the only animals that ever died on behalf of Jesus. In obeying all the 613 laws, there's a whole segment of it that he was never required to do because he never actually sinned against the others. He never actually had to offer a sacrifice for his own sin. He never had to have blood shed on his behalf. And so though he'd show up at Passover, though he'd show up at the temple, when it, the, 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 the expectation was that they were all to be there those three times a year, though he lived and, and, and practiced the, the law, he never actually had to take advantage of God's atonement for sin because he never sinned against the other laws. So though he didn't actually have, I don't know how many of them would have been considered sacrificial laws, but though he never actually had to physically do them, he didn't disobey them because they weren't required of him. He obeyed the law, he, he obeyed the law not the oral tradition. So there's places where the Pharisees call him out on, call him out on it. And wait, wait a minute, wait a minute. You and your people broke the Sabbath. You shouldn't be healing people on the Sabbath. Because they had, they had developed all these laws. And I don't mean to be rude about this. I don't mean to be uh, um, uh, inflammatory about this. But, but we do it. Right? I, I want to be obedient to God. I don't want to struggle with my eyes. I don't want to struggle with my desires. I don't want to struggle with 
the temptation to uh, my love of money. I don't want to do this. I don't want to do that. And so we build barriers for ourselves, right? I don't watch movies with lots of gratuitous. Well, I, I do my best not to watch anything that's got any, kind of le- any level of nudity in it because I just don't need it. I don't, wanna, I don't want at some point it being registered. Oh, Seth fell and look at this. And so what do I do? I build barriers for myself. I look at what's the context of every movie before I, I watch it. I just, I'm not going to go there. I, I don't want to repeat the same mistakes of people who have gone before me. So though I love the women of our church, I don't meet with you alone because I've seen too many people fall as a result of it because we're all human. I built guardrails for myself. But here's what they were doing is that they were building those guardrails that they could live by, the, the guardrail that kept them falling off the cliff on the other side of the guardrail, but then they're applying it with the same authority that the 613 commands had. And they're saying, you, to, to be obedient, you have to, you have to live by our oral tradition, not just the law of Moses. He didn't obey that, but he obeyed the law of Moses. Born under it, he obeyed it. We're going to get to the point where I'm going to show you that he obeyed it, but not because it was an end in itself, but he obeyed it so long as it was necessary. But it had an end in sight, and it had a purpose. So he, Jesus obeyed the law. Jesus explained the law. He brought the full meaning out of the law. In fact, the whole Sermon on the Mount is Jesus explaining and expressing what the law really Means We looked at a couple of them last week as we were looking at the commands to love. Love, your, love God uh, with your whole heart, mind, and soul. Love your neighbor as yourself. And we come back and we see Jesus talking about anger and talking about lust and saying, hey, if you've done this in your heart, you've actually murdered. If you've done this in your heart, you've actually committed adultery. But this whole, this whole passage is filled with him explaining what's really going on and what's really happening in the law. Retaliation. You, we could just actually follow the, if you've got a Bible open, there's headings over all of these that kind of give a summary of them. Anger, lust, divorce, oaths, uh, retaliation. I've put these verses on the screen for you. Matthew 5, 38 through 40. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. Man, not only is that, that's, that's revolutionary talk in that culture, but that's revolutionary talk in this culture. Who are you to tell me I can't go to the church building? Who are you to tell me I can't do this, right? Who are you? I'm angry about it. I don't think that's what turning the other cheek looks like. I'm not saying we shouldn't have something to say. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. When, when lies are told, I think we ought to be able to call out lies with truth. But why are we doing it and how are we doing it? Man, I, hmm. Ooh, you're going to sue me? I'm going to fight back and I'm going to make you pay. That doesn't sound like giving them your cloak and your tunic. I don't like talking about this, but I think it's the best illustration of it that I could think of. In 20, 
20 into 2021 and 2022, the name of your pastors got smeared over and over to people in this room. It is not my place to make them pay, the people who did it. I, I will, and, and this is the way I'm always going to seek to lead among the elders and pastors of this church. I have been accused of this, uh, and it's not just me, but even, even going back all the way in a number of different situations. I will seek to speak truth to lies. We will seek to stand for truth. But we have been over and over called evil when we are seeking to love those who we've been given responsibility to shepherd. And I am not perfect in this. I don't think the other pastors are, but I'll speak for myself in this. I have done my best not to undermine or defame or tear them down. Anyone that has ever done that to me. I have been, oh yeah, I'm not going to go any further. There's a reality. Jesus has something to say. But he's going to explain more than just the letter of the law. It's funny to me that when we obey the law, we simply, or when we promote the law, we simply speak of the letter of the law. Very rarely do we come to the place where we're saying, no, 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 brother, sister, Christian, live by the spirit and the intent and the motive that drives out the desire to do this. Retaliation. Love your enemies, Matthew 5, 43 through 44. You have heard it said, he says, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Under under the Jewish law, by living by the letter of the law. We can hate people that disregard us and do harm to us and come against us who serve as our enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. No. You don't get an option. He's not giving you a choice. He's explaining what the command really is. He obeys the law. He explains the law. And we see this even last week as we, as we talk about, the, as we talk about the, the love your neighbor as yourself and love, loving God with your whole, the, the greatest commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, the seconds like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Even that, he takes and he puts them together so far as we can tell, so far as, and, and I'm not we, because I'm dependent upon other people who have studied these things, but But so far, every ounce of study, every person I turned to that mentioned it demonstrates that there is nobody in the history of the Jewish church that has been found in antiquity anywhere that have ever put these two laws together. He draws from Deuteronomy and he draws from Leviticus and he ties these two things together and says on these two things the whole law hangs. He's the first person to have ever done that so far as we know in history. He's not denying the law. He's not ignoring it. and he, He's obeying it and he's explaining it. He's, he's bringing to us an understanding that's, that's bigger than what they first knew. And, and, and really, this is what he calls out and, and condemns the Pharisees and the scribes for. If you read Matthew 23, it's, woe to you Pharisee, woe to you scribes, you hypocrites. It's 
It's a whole chapter of him just pronouncing woes, curses. And he comes to this place, Matthew 23, 23, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin. Now you think about this. Where's the mint and dill and cumin in your house? Yeah. How many of you are counting that when you're giving your tithe? Right? Like how many of us are really sitting down and, and getting down to that depth? Probably none of us. Like, who, who considers their spices? But they were doing it. Mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the way to you. You're dealing with the light stuff. But you've neglected the way to your matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Absolutely be that specific. Look at your life and what you have and live generously as a result of that, he says. But you show yourself lawbreakers because you're not demonstrating mercy. You're not demonstrating faithfulness. You're not demonstrating justice. They would have thought they were living justly. This would have cut them at the knees. He's explaining the law and holding account of the law in a way that they weren't used to. So Jesus obeyed the law. Jesus explains the law. And Jesus is the end of the law. He fulfills it in every way like the prophets so so this is so interesting because Matthew here puts it together the law and the prophets and that is a way it's a a Jewish way it's a very normal way for these for these people that he's speaking to to think of the old testament there's the the law and the prophets and and that phrase it includes everything from Genesis to Malachi First word in Genesis to the last, it includes the whole thing. And so as we interpret this and as we seek to understand it, it can't simply be that he fulfilled it by obeying it. It can't simply mean that he fulfilled it in the explaining of it. Because Matthew puts this right next to the prophets, that when you think of him fulfilling the prophets, you don't think of him obeying the prophets, do you? That's not the natural understanding of that. When you think of him fulfilling what the prophets said about him, what do you... His life revealed it. And we don't look to the prophets today and say, oh, they're still prophesying and we need to be waiting for this thing when it's clear the thing they were prophesying was Jesus. Are there things and promises that the prophets were still holding out on? The the final consummation? Absolutely. We're going to go there. and and, and Probably, I won't go there, but we're going to go there. Start talking about time frames. We're in trouble. But start putting up charts. Sorry. We're going to go there. But so much of what the prophets had to say are all about Jesus. He fulfilled this law. He was the point of the law. He was the thing the law was pointing to all the time. It's the law that shows us he's our Savior. It's the law that sets him out as the, the, the sinless, perfect uh, Lamb without spot or blemish. Without the law, how would we know that? How would we measure that? He fulfills it. The Mosaic law was always temporary until. And he even shows us this in this passage. Therefore, whoever... Uh, uh, I'm sorry, let me, let me step back. For truly I say to you, until. As soon as you hear that word, you recognize there's a limitation on it. Right? Until. Heaven and earth pass away. Not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. There's always, there's always been a, a limitation. 
Now, there's all kind of discussions about until heaven and earth pass away and how that might be um, uh, uh, balanced according to until all is accomplished because until all is accomplished might be pointing to his death and his resurrection. I don't think we really, I don't, I don't think we can really argue that clearly or convincingly. What we can see is that there is an until placed here. There's always been a temporary nature to it. It's always been temporary. Paul points to this in Galatians 3.24. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Wait a minute. Until Christ came. The law was our guardian. It's a tutor. It's a nursemaid. It, it watched over us until Christ came. In Christ's coming, something shifts and changes. The writer of Hebrews, now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under, the, uh, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. The New Testament authors seemingly understood and drew from and, and gathered and gained the understanding, the clear understanding that there was an end in the law, at least a fulfillment that would shift the way we approach it. The New Covenant people were intended, were never intended to be ruled by an external law. In fact, if you go back to the pro prophecy of the New Covenant in Jeremiah and the, prophecy, or the, the fulfillment of the New Covenant in Hebrews 8, what does he say? I will write my law on their hearts. We were never meant to be ruled or our holiness maintained by, a, by an external law. Paul in Romans 10 verse 4, For Christ is the end. It's the telos. That, that's the Greek word telos. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. The law is not required for righteousness to everyone who believes. Jesus didn't ignore, undermine, or override the Mosaic law, but instead obeyed, explained, and brought the law to its intended end. <laughs> the law, the old covenant, the prophets, they, they're always pointing to Jesus. So when we read the Bible, when we teach the Bible, we don't ignore these verses or their meaning in the original context. But we aren't done with dealing with them until we've seen Jesus as their fulfillment. So not only is this dangerous for us in our context. And I know I, I'm going to, well, no, I'm, I'm intentionally doing it. But I don't, I don't mean to start an argument. But maybe I'd, I'll end up in it after this is over. But on the far side of the, the, the thing is the theonomist, right? And, and the theonomist, their position is, let's take the civil law and let's ask an a non-covenant people, a non-regenerate people. Let's apply that to them and expect every government to be ruled by the civil law of God. Right? That's the theonomist perspective. So they've got, they divide it in two ways. The moral law and the ceremonial law, that's really the way they break it down. And, and the moral law encompasses all of the moral law, like the Ten Commandments, and all of the civil law, like all the rules for well, I don't, I, honestly, I don't think they do it consistently. I've not heard anyone who does it absolutely consistently. But the, the, at the same time, it's out that that's, that's the position. And some go so far as to say not only the law, but also its consequences, which is really part of the law. So I don't know how you go halfway and don't take all of it. But I think there's inconsistencies there. 
But what they've done is they've said, okay, well, you know, Jesus has fulfilled it, and they'll make an argument from this passage, but then they'll turn around and they'll say to everyone who has ever lived, they must be under this law. So let's rule America with that law. I'm not opposed to that. But, do, but, but can I do that by force? Can I demand it? Is there a biblical way in which I can say everyone must obey the old covenant law? Not without seeing it fulfilled in Jesus first. So what does that mean? It means recognizing that the law was always pointing us to the need for a Savior. It's enslaving people in sin, but demonstrating that they need a Savior, that they can't measure up and only blind people. Only people who are blinded in their sin, who are dead, but even then they're not going to obey the law. So you're fighting a futile battle to demand they do. When I think the mission we've been given is not to make them obey a law, but to point them to and preach and proclaim the death and resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I'd love for our nation to have godly laws. I'd love for our nation to to use the wisdom of the old covenant as it seems to have done at one time. But how are we going to win that influence? By screaming and shouting? Or by proclaiming the gospel? And every Christian going and involving themselves in the lives of the people around them. Not withdrawing and throwing stones, but going in and getting our hands a little bit dirty. Recognizing that we can't be made dirty. That our presence actually brings holiness. And preach and proclaim the truth of Jesus Christ. Instead of arguing over the law, look and read and understand these things from a Christ-centered perspective. So that as we go out. We're using these things to show people they need Jesus. He's the fulfillment. He's the solution. He's the answer. When we teach it, we should teach this in the same way Jesus did. And, and in, the same way that, in, in the same way that the New Testament does. On, on, on the two sides of this. On the two sides of this argument, the, the far dispensationalist that's going to reject everything in the Old Covenant, that's going to want to separate themselves and unhitch the Old Covenant from the new, new, Old Testament from the New Testament, and all the way to the other side, they're going to they're have these perspectives. Well, if, if it's not stated in the New Testament, we don't have to obey it. If it's, not, if, it's, if it's stated in the New Testament, then we obey it, right? They're looking for those two, two extremes, That's our authority. And Jesus didn't do that. He he spoke of the Old Covenant. He spoke of the Old Testament. Maintaining an extension or maintaining it. And and then then sometimes shifting it just a little bit. You've heard it said, but I'll tell you. Transforming it like the Sabbath law. Is Sunday our Sabbath? Boy, start a fight. I'm going to post three articles this week that will give you an opportunity to read the three major positions. But I'm of the mind, it, it's, the one of the ten, it's the only one of the Ten Commandments that actually isn't stated again in the New Testament, except that in the Sabbath, our Sabbath is in Christ. And honestly, if you're going to hold to the Ten Commandments and, and, and that the Sabbath is still authoritative over the Christian life as a day, then I don't think you have a biblical model for making it Sunday. There's a tradition 
But is the law authoritative or not? And then in some, he annuls it. As he speaks about food in Mark chapter 7, Mark actually adds, adds a, a little note and he says, in so saying, he made all foods clean. We have to look at the law through Jesus. We have to look at it through him as a lens, as a filter, and teach it as he does because we can't quit teaching the law. It's still Christian scripture. But when we hear people arguing, when we hear people throwing stones, when we hear people, we don't have to be unsettled because we have Christ, the fulfillment, the peace giver, the law fulfiller. We have him. And in him we're saved, not the law. No one will ever be saved under the law. Earlier I pointed you to Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of the woman, born of the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption. Why did he fulfill the law? Why did he end the law? Why, why did it last until this time? Because he came under he, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption. As sons. No one's going to be saved under the law. But without the law, without the old covenant, how do we arrive at the work of salvation? There is no salvation apart from it either. Because in it we find Jesus. No one will be made holy by the outer application of the law. The Ten Commandments, the law given to, to Israel, it set them apart. It made them distinct. It it enabled them to stand apart. Like God says you're holy and because I've made you holy, I want you to be holy. And so he gives them this law. He says, obey these things. He gives them the, the, the Ten Commandments. Just use those as, as an example. The last half of them were common to the laws of people all around them. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't, don't steal. Right? Like That was common to people all around them. It didn't distinguish them in any way. It just gave them an ability to live together. What distinguished them was the first part. You shall have no other gods before me. You're going to have one God. Radically different. You should not make idols. Radically different. And in the following of the law, they express their holiness. You and I will never express our holiness simply through the obedience to the letter of the law. Our holiness is expressed from the inside out. If we can't do something in faith, trusting the Lord, then as noble as it appears to everyone, God still sees it as sin. If we can't love our neighbor and our love God as we're doing something and we're doing it for self-motivation or, or for selfish reasons or all, I'm just trying to promote myself, trying to exalt myself, trying to protect myself, trying to do for me, do for me, do for me, then no matter how Noble it appears. It's still not holy. Our holiness is revealed not by the obedience to the letter of the law, but by expression of the love that's been put within us. Not by the obedience to the demands of an external law, but by the expression of a desire to live honorably before the Lord, trusting Him and Him alone. So that when we love, like Jesus has loved us. And he said this. And if you love one another, then, then everybody will know you're my disciples. The reality is that God has given us this, this new life, this new desire, this new heart, this new ability to love, this new ability to trust, this new movement. 
that might be guided, that might be given some wisdom and discernment by those external teachings, but, th- but, but then it finds its footing in the reality of who he's made us as his new covenant people, such that when we love God and strive to love him first and foremost, when we love neighbor as self, when we love one another as Christ has loved us, you know what we're doing? We are revealing the image of the one who saved us which is the very thing you were created to do. But you will never get done simply by adherence to the letter of a law. He puts it in us. He transforms us from the inside out, gives us new hearts softened with a law written on them that expresses through a new desire, through a new faith, through a, through, through a, a new love that reveals him in this broken world. All right, let's pray.